You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. It's the Sunday before the 4th, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to do something. I'm going to read you something. I came across a book just uh, and ordered it just this week, found it. It's called The Orators of the American Revolution. This is a first edition. It's an 1848 um, edition, the first edition of this book. The original chart of American liberty was drawn and signed in the cabin of the Mayflower. It was a civil compact based on Republican principles, but sanctioned by Christian faith. They were a whole lot closer to it then than we are today. Are we a Christian nation? Well, there you go, right there. It is interesting how much of the Word of God has to say concerning a nation and its following God and concerning a nation's leaders. We're all familiar with Proverbs chapter 14 where we read that righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a disgrace or a reproach to any people. And then there is um, leaders, there's the leadership that uh, is of a nation and what the Word of God has to say concerning the leadership of, uh, of a country. It, it's an interesting statement in the 29th chapter of uh, Proverbs where you read in the second verse, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Uh, you get on over into that same chapter and you read these words, if a ruler pays attention to lies. All his ministers become liars. I just leave that with you. Uh, it, is, it is fascinating how the word of God simply nails us to who we really are in our sin. God takes a nation and delivers a nation, brings a nation to a new land, Brings that nation there. They understand and know his word. Uh, they enter into not just a compact, but they enter into a covenant with God. And yet in a short period of time, they sin against the God who has brought them to a new place or is bringing them to a new place. And, um, and as God will, his judgment will fall on that nation and on its leaders um, there is civil unrest and civil war uh, in the nation, and unless there is repentance, uh, they face total destruction. Now, unless you think I am referring to the United States, I'm referring to Israel in chapter 32 of Exodus. Uh, it's interesting how closely you can follow American history and the history of these Hebrews. 
Uh, God delivered them out of bondage, out of Egypt, was taking them to a new land, gave them a covenant, and yet within a matter of weeks, they, uh, they go back on the covenant. Uh, they claim they will be obedient to it, uh, but they are not, and um, judgment is going to fall on them. They go off into sin, and we're going to see the judgment that comes. Exodus in general, as I've shared with you, really concerns itself with the whole concept of worship. And it tells us that we will worship the God that is and not the God that we want him to be. Now, all of Exodus gives us that. Really, all of the word of God tells us that. But in a unique way, this 32nd chapter, as we come beginning in verse 15, really shows us the results of sin are disastrous when a nation, because this is a nation that is at the foot of this mountain. Uh, God is making a nation. He's just given them not just moral law, he's given them civil law. And civil law is what makes, and it's where you get the concept of civilization. So he gives them not just moral law, the Ten Commandments, but he gives them civil law. How do you live in a civilized society? You do it by uh, the enactment of the right kinds of law on people. Uh, so he's given them that. They are a nation. They reject God. They rebel against him. And he shows how sin brings a disaster on the people of a nation when they make God into their own image. And you say, when a pastor, we don't do that. I don't know if you caught what went viral this past week, but what went viral this past week was a pastor of a Lutheran church, a co-pastor of a Lutheran church up in Minneapolis, I believe it was, and uh, there in this Lutheran church, she led the church into what she calls or is called the Sparkle Creed. And it goes like this, not the Apostles' Creed, but the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. Now show me that anywhere in the Word of God and I will repent. I'm not a heretic because I will be corrected by Scripture. But show me where that is in the Word of God. Binary means that God is neither male nor female. He is a conglomeration of all the genders that we have now come into and have devised. Uh, the church repeated this, I believe, in the non-binary. Now, let me just repeat that. The church repeated this. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads. Now, it gets far worse than all of that. Now, I ask you, is this not where we are today? Exodus chapter, have we not made up our own God? Well, and in many churches, people are worshiping the God that they have made up rather than the God who is. 
So I want you to look at Exodus chapter 32. We're going to begin in verse 15. And let me tell you this, I can't put it all quite together, but uh, the Holy Spirit is doing something here to show us or to speak to us in terms of our senses, of hearing, of seeing, of tasting, of uh, thinking, processing, uh, the mental, the emotional aspect. I just call that to your attention because that's all I've been able to see as we go through this, and I've wondered why, and I don't really have a great answer for it other than um, these people have now these senses that have been overtaken by sin. So let me begin in verse 15 on this Sunday before the 4th, and let me show you one thing. I started to, or I did entitle this sermon, The Sound of Music. <laughs> so here, here it is, and that's what you're going to see. First of all, the sound of sin. Uh, then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides, and they were written on one side and on the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now, just tuck that back because we're going to come to that, back to that in just a moment. Uh, what these tablets, how valuable these tablets were. Uh, but he comes across Joshua that is up on the mountain. Evidently, Moses left Joshua somewhere below the summit where he was in the presence of God. And uh, yet he was up above the valley, the foot of the mountain, so that he had no clue as to what was going on down in the mountain, uh, down in the valley. He did not really know all that was going on up in the mountain. So when Moses gets to him, Moses doesn't immediately catch him and say, Joshua, we've got to get down. This is what God has said to me. So he doesn't tell Moses what God has said to him, that the people are in sin, that they are uh, worshiping an idol, it's almost, I think, as if Moses is still trying to process it himself. Uh, it's something that he just really can't believe, and he has no idea the extent of what's going on down there, so he's just not saying anything. But Joshua picks up on a sound. Now watch this, folks. Watch, watch this in the text. Now when Joshua heard, there's a word for that conveys sound, he heard the sound. He's going to mention that word five times. He heard the sound of the people as they shouted. That conveys a sound as well. Uh, and he said to Moses, there is the sound of war. Now watch this. There's the sound of war in the camp. It is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat. I mean, he's going through all this process. It's the sound of war. It's the sound of triumph. It's the sound of defeat. No, it's the sound of hearing. It's the sound of music that I hear. So he kind of rolls through all of these things. He's used these two, three different words that describe sound in these two verses. So it's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, look at this, look at this, look at this. Look at this whole concept of sound. There is a sound to sin. What does sin sound like? Now, all through Scripture, you'll come across this. You come to the 18th chapter of Genesis where uh, the Lord comes to visit Abraham, and he 
turns to Abraham and he tells him what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says this, the Lord says this. He says, for the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up to me. I've heard what's going on there. I've heard the sin that is taking place there. There's a sound to it. You can go all the way back to the fourth chapter of Genesis uh, when the Lord comes to Cain and he says to Cain, uh, your brother's blood cries out from the ground to me. There is a sound evidently in the spiritual dimension of what sin sounds like. Several places you will read in scripture that blood speaks. I've never heard it. Sounds like ouch to me. But, uh, you know, evidently there is a dimension of sound that you and I are not <laughs> privileged to hear. Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. It's not just the Old Testament. Jesus talks about the place of Gehenna, the place we call hell, and he says that there is a sound that comes out of hell. He says it is the sound of wailing and gnashing of teeth. You ever heard somebody grind their teeth in the night? I had a good friend when I was a boy, and we uh, every once in a while our parents would let us spend the night with each other. And uh, the first night I ever spent the night with this guy, Man, that guy ground his teeth. I thought he's going to break every tooth in his head. I'd never heard anything like that before. And Jesus says that there is a sound that comes out of hell, and it's, it's the sound of wailing, and it's the sound of the grinding, the gnashing of teeth. Now, you find this all through the Word of God. You, you, find, you, you find that Scripture will talk about the way things sound, Early on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, we, and into chapter 3, you get this sound of God walking in the garden. Now, what does that sound like? Have you ever wondered what God would sound like if he were to walk through your yard? Uh, there's the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day to meet up with Adam and Eve. David was told right after he became king, he was, the, the Philistines invaded the land. He goes to the Lord and he prays. He says, should we go out and meet him, uh, meet the enemy? And God says, go out. And he says, uh, you'll be delivered. You won't even have to fight. And they go out and they hear the marching. Now listen to what the Bible says. The marching of an angelic army in the tops of the balsam trees. What does that sound like? What would an angelic army sound like if it was marching across the trees? Again, in the New Testament, because I don't want you to think this is all just Old Testament, you get into Acts chapter 2, and we're told on that day of Pentecost, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. It was the sound of it. Now, I know what that sounds like. Um, in a place where there are trees, but what does that sound like in the middle of a city? Well, all through the Word of God, you get this. There's this sense that there is a sound to sin, and we wonder, what does that sound like? John talks in Revelation chapter 4, and he says, I heard a trumpet as it was speaking to me. Now, I've heard trumpets, but I never had one talk to me. So I have no clue as to what that sounds like, but yet I come to this and all I can do, I don't know all that that means 
other than the fact that there is a sound to sin and I can, I, can, I can demise these three, or I can surmise these three things. Number one, the sound of sin is constantly changing. Do you pick that up here with John? It sounds like war. No, it sounds like the cry of a triumph. No, it sounds like the cry of defeat. No, it sounds like the sound of singing. It's this. No, it's this. No, it's this. No, it's this. The sound of sin must be constantly changing. Number two, the second thing is this, it must be the sound of confusion. I know sin brings confusion, but the sound of sin must obviously sound like confusion. And number three, the sound of sin tells you to embrace what God's word clearly tells you to eschew, to put away, to not touch, to not do. There is a sound of sin that calls you. To itself. Well, there's the sound. Let's go to the sight. Now look at this in verse 19. There's the sight of sin. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw. Now you can stop with that. He saw this. It had been described to him by God. God had told him what was going on down in uh, the valley below, down at the foot of the mountain. God says, you've got to get down there. You've got to go because the people now whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten calf. They've worshiped at it, having sacrificed to it. And he said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now that's what God described to him back in verse 7 and verse 8. He'd not seen it, but he heard it. And you know exactly, like I know, it's one thing for somebody to describe something to you. It's something else for you to see it. I have people a lot of times tell me, ask me, what is Jerusalem like? And all I can tell them is this. I, I can share with you uh, all of the aspects of the city of Jerusalem, but it is nothing like coming out of that tunnel and whipping around that curve and looking down on the entire city of Jerusalem and seeing the ancient walled city and on that massive platform, that, uh, that dome of the rock that is there, the mosque of Omar, I, I cannot describe it the way it needs to be described. You just have to look at it. And when you look at it, it just is inexplicable. Now, God had explained to Moses what's going on, but then he sees it. He sees it for what it is, the calf, the dancing. And by the way, that word dancing there is in the plural, which leads us to believe, or commentators will tell you, that the word dancing in plural implies uh, sexual activity. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hand, and he shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Now, if you go back up, I told you, don't forget, because we've got two verses here that describe these, these tablets. Uh, he goes down from the mountain, verse 15, two tablets of testimony, and it's at tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on the one side and on the other, tablets which were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now, I have always, always, even since I was uh, an older child, wondered why did Moses do that? Why did he throw it down and break? Why would you break something? If you had something that 
all of a sudden you were covered up in a cloud of fire and lightning and the earth quaked and a hand came down and handed you um, a tablet that had been written on by the finger of God, what would you do with it? Well, the first thing I would not do is call the museum because I wouldn't be giving it away to anybody. Um, uh, you, you, would, you think you would guard it with your life. This is the, and yet Moses comes, and when he sees what's taking place, he throws these tablets down. Now, there are those who will say he does that to demonstrate that the people have broken the covenant of God. And I suppose that's very possible, but I think there's a far more human explanation. He was mad. He was furious. He was some more upset. This is the meekest man that has ever lived. The meekest man, the word of God will tell us in all the earth, we have seen him only react in anger once, and that was back years and years and years ago, decades ago, when he killed that Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. You really have not seen that out of him since then, and yet here come, even in the meekest man, when you can push him too far, he'll react with anger. Moses was furious. And you have to ask the question, you know, well, was this righteous indignation? I think it was. And you say, how do you know that? Because God is going to correct him later for his anger in another place at another time when he disobeys the word of God. God doesn't correct him here. This was a righteous indignation on Moses' part. He was furious. So furious that he took what you would think to be the most precious thing in the world, and he threw it down and he broke it. Now, that's not the only thing he breaks here. Watch it, what else he does. Verse 20, he took the calf which they had made, he burned it with fire. You got three verbs here. He burned it with fire, he ground it to powder, he scattered it over the surface of the water, and he made the sons of Israel drink it. So he takes that calf that's there he, uh, he, he, he takes it and he burns it in the fire. He grinds what is left of it down. Then he scatters it on that water that was flowing out of the mountain there. He scatters it. He calls the whole nation there and he makes them drink it. Now here's the interesting thing or the funny thing or the curious thing. Um, We'll eat gold today as dessert. Have you heard that? There's a place up in New York City called Serendipity, number three, in the city there for their 50th anniversary. I want you to look what they served. Can y'all see that? I just want to look at it for a minute. I'm going to read this to you. They introduced their luxurious and unique dessert, which goes for $1,000. An ice cream sundae made from only the finest things starts with three scoops of Tahitian vanilla ice cream, which is the most expensive ice cream in the world. Who knew? 
and is covered in 23-carat edible gold leaf infused with Madagascar vanilla beans, chunks of rare chocolate from Venezuela. The impressive Sunday is also adorned with candy fruits from Paris, covered gold almonds, chocolate truffles, marzipan cherries. To finish it all, a small glass bowl of, now this ruins it, Grand Passion Caviar. That's it on top right there. That is simply called egg roe, fish roe, fish eggs on ice cream for $1,000. It all comes, listen, in, with, topped off by a mother of pearl spoon with a gilded sugar flour Golden opulent Sunday is served in an 18-carat Baccarat Harcourt crystal goblet, which can be taken home with an 18-carat gold spoon on the side. Moses didn't intend that. Moses intended this to be a judgment on the people when he ground that up and he sprinkled it on the water for the people to go and drink it it was meant to be a judgment, but I want to tell you what happens to the people, to a nation, to a person, when you commit yourself to worship a God of your own personal making, you will say eventually to God, I'll make your judgment into my dessert. We don't care what your word says. We're not interested in what your word says. Now, I've never eaten gold, by the way. I'll just let you know that up front. I have no clue as to what it tastes like. But I tell you this, we are basically at the place as a nation to where we laugh at the judgment of God and say, we'll take your judgment and we'll make it our dessert. That's the sight Moses sees something that so moves him. Having been in the presence of God, listen, his spiritual life was so elevated that what he sees absolutely moves him to a righteous anger and he takes the most precious thing in the world that you could think of and he throws it down and he breaks it. Now let me give you the third thing. And the third thing is this. It's the subterfuge of sin. Now, the word subterfuge literally means this concept or has this concept to escape responsibility, to evade consequences. Uh, subterfuge kind of explains to us or says to us that you don't have to suffer for your sins. You don't have to go through punishment. You can't escape. You can't avoid uh, you can get by with your sin without ever paying the consequences. Well, look at the story here. Now, as I set that up, you come to verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, all I'm doing is going straight down this text. He comes to Aaron. He's going to start with Aaron, and then he's going to turn to the people. And uh, he, he says to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such great sin upon them. Now, he's holding Aaron responsible because he left Aaron in the place of responsibility. So he holds him responsible for what the people have done. Those in leadership, James will tell you, do not 
many of you seek that place of being in leadership because you're going to be judged with a harsher judgment. And so he comes here, and what he says to him is this, what, have, what did they do to you that you brought them to such great sin? Do you see that word great sin right there? It's used three times in this passage. One right here, verse 21, one in verse 30, and one in verse 31. We'll come to those in just a few minutes. Moses said to him, what did this people do? Did they put a gun to your Aaron, they had it. Surely they put a gun to your head. Is that what they did to you? Are you dealing with the mafia here? Did they threaten to take your wife out and kill her or to kill your kids? Sounds like Putin and Progozin, doesn't it? You, you really kind of wonder what happened there. He got his family and said, we'll just go ahead, do what you're doing. I'll just put your family to death. I'll be sure that they suffer while it goes on. That, that's what you think surely must have happened in that situation. And that's what Moses is asking Aaron. Aaron, surely they must have done. Did they torture you? Did they put you on the rack? Did they threaten to kill you? What did they do to you? What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, don't, don't be mad at me, brother. Look, don't get upset with me. You know the people yourself. They're prone to evil. Always blame somebody else. Never your fault. Blame someone else. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. Moses, you weren't here. It's your fault now. Because you were not here. Oh, my stars. So I said to them, whoever has gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. They threw, and, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Now, let me tell you, Moses doesn't respond. Is that, is that strange to you, that he doesn't respond to him? That Moses doesn't say something back to Aaron like, you know, you little nimrod. Mom and dad should have whooped you more than what they did. I don't know. He doesn't say anything. You know why? In disgust. In disgust, he thinks that statement doesn't even deserve an answer. And so he turns from Aaron now, and he turns to the people. Look at verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control. Now, let me tell you, in the Hebrew, that word literally means they were naked. Uh, we keep coming back to that because uh, like the pagans around them, they were coming to worship. Uh, they were coming to worship really what was a God of fertility. And so as they come to worship of God of, uh, a God of fertility, this golden calf, I don't have to explain to you, you know. I just, all I have to say is, you know. So there they are. He looks at them, and they're all standing there, and they have nothing on, and they're in the act of worshiping a fertility God. And look at what Scripture says again in verse 25. For Aaron let them get out of control uh, to be a derision among their enemies, that even the pagan nations who do the same thing stand around and are laughing at them. You know, this is a, I, I could stop here and I could get off on this. And if I were at a pastor's conference, I probably would. But I want to tell you, do you see how it keeps coming back to Aaron here? A leader, a leader, a leader. Aaron simply gave in to what the people wanted to do. Everybody thinks a good leader is a leader who gives in to what they all want. No, he is not. No, I will not. 
I'm sorry. I don't like people to be mad at me. I don't like people to be upset with my preaching. I don't like to upset anybody. I am, for the most part, a very people pleaser until it comes to what the Word of God says. And I don't want the Word of God one day to me to be, you let those people get out of control. Now, go to YouTube, get this video, download it where you can go back again and again so that if any time you're disgusted or put out with me, you hear what I just said. I would love to do what everybody, I would love to be what everybody would like for me to be. But I decided a long time ago that I'm going to be God's man and nobody else's man. So they come back again and again to this. Aaron let them get out of control. He's being held responsible for this. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, now listen to the words. I'm going to read it to you the way it is in the Hebrew. Whoever is for the Lord, to me. Whoever is for the Lord, to me. The word come is supplied. That's why it's in italics there. Uh, if, you, if your copy of God's word has it in italics, that's why. He just say, he's basically saying, whoever's going to be on the Lord's side, here. Right now, get here. And the tribe of Levi, which is his tribe, all moved. They were the first there. They came there to his tribe. And he looks around at his own tribe, and he basically quotes Rooster Cogburn in true grit, and he says, fill your hands, and I'll just stop with the quote right there. He says, strap your swords to your side. Here comes civil war. Here comes punishment. And again, I come back to this. It's funny that he pleads for the people, God, don't destroy them, and yet he goes down there, and he says, I'll do it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. He says, you put your sword upon your thigh, go back and forth from gate to gate. Now watch this. Here's the civil war aspect of it. Kill every man his brother. By the way, today is the third, day, third day's battle of Gettysburg. By the end of this day, the civil war basically will have been decided. It will continue on for a little over a year, a uh, little more than a year. And uh, yet, um, by July 3rd, 1863, it's done. Anyway, I just that's your historic moment. Here's, here's the civil war that comes. You've got brother killing brother. In other words, you cannot stop and, and rationalize what these people are deciding, and that is this. You say, well, who are these 3,000? They evidently were the 3,000 who would not come over to the Lord's side. The only way I can understand this is that these were 3,000 hardened people who said, we so love to worship this way, we will not come back to worshiping God. And so they go through, kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. Now that's a civil war right there, or it's an uncivil war, whatever you want to call it. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 of the people fell that day. And Moses said, dedicate yourselves to the Lord. You see, that's what he's doing. Those who want to dedicate themselves, those who are willing to come and dedicate, 
For every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. You come to the Lord's side now. And you rededicate yourself to the Lord. <coughs> and you say, but pastor, is it really fair? Let me, that's above my pay grade. But let me tell you, because we all are wondering, well, why didn't the others get punished? Look at verse 35. That's why you need to read the whole thing. Because you come to verse 35 and it says, The Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Now listen to me carefully. You can come in repentance. You can come in rededication. But it will not always exempt you from the consequences of sin. Jesus can forgive you, yes. Jesus will embrace you, yes. Jesus will love you, yes. But let me tell you something. That doesn't always take care of the consequences of sin. There are a lot of repentant people who have broken up their marriages because of sin. Consequences. There are people in the pokey today. Repentant, yes, but paying for the consequences of their sin. Sin has consequences, folks. And the consequences of sin are not always taken away by God. And for Israel, you say, well, what was the plague? I have no idea. We're not told. We're not told who suffered, how they suffered, what it was that called them to suffer. All we're told here is that God simply came to them and he punished them. There was a plague on all of those who had worshipped at that calf. And you see, that's exactly what the subterfuge of sin will tell you. There are no consequences. What else do you think Satan would say to you? You go off into some kind of sin. Listen, you get off by yourself in the middle of a night with a computer and Satan will say, there are no consequences to this. You come and you social drink and you think to yourself, I am so free in Jesus Christ, I can have this or I can have that. And Satan will whisper to you, there are no consequences to this. What else do you think he's going to say? You can flirt up a storm down at the office with the new man or woman in that corner office, and Satan will promise you there are no consequences to this. And while you go through the consequences, Satan delights in your pain. You say, when a pastor, that's about as depressing as it gets. It is. You know what? Sin is depressing, isn't it? Now, for those of you that think I'm too harsh and too overbearing, listen, because I'll always bring you back to the good point. If you're not too far gone in depression at this point, listen to what I've got to say, because this is what the Word says, number four, the remedy of sin. There is a remedy for all of this mess. 
You come to verse 30 and listen. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. That's the second time you hear that. Now I'm going up to the Lord. He comes to the people and he says, your sin is a great sin. And now he comes and what he's going to do now is he says this to them. Uh, Moses returned to the Lord. And alas, he says, I'm going to try to go and make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin. He doesn't cover it up with God. He doesn't try to dress it up. He doesn't try to pretty it up. He doesn't go up there and say, God, yeah, you know, they really, they stumped their toe back here. No, he goes up and he says, they committed a great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now, God already knew that, but Moses needed to confess that. And he confesses it. But this is what I want you to see. Listen, this is the point to where you can be thankful for the word of God. Moses now says, but now, if you will forgive their sin... He just prays and he says, God, he intercedes again and he says, God, forgive their sin. And if you will not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Now Moses indicates that there's a book that God has written and that in that book he will blot people out. The word blot, by the way, means to erase in such a way that you're not only erased but you're forgotten. It means a Total destruction, completely and totally destruction. He says, if you will forgive their sin, and if you don't, blot me out from your book, which you ever, if you won't forgive them, don't forgive me. I don't know that I'd ever pray that. Um, Paul prays pretty much the same thing. God, you, you know, you can condemn me to hell if you just save all of Israel. I don't know that I'd pray that in all seriousness. This is serious praying right here. Do you know what he's doing here? He's identifying with the people. He identifies with the people so much that he says, God, if you're not going to forgive them, then don't forgive me and let me just die with them. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, let me give you this in just good old southern language. Moses, get your nose out of my books. Stop telling me how to keep my books. These are my books, not your books. Don't tell me what to do. I blot out who I'll blot out, and I'll put in who I'll put in. That's basically what God tells him right there. He says this, but go now, lead the people where I told you. Do you hear that? But go now, lead the people. What's God saying in that? I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to forgive them, and they're going to continue the journey, and you're going to continue to lead them. There's the positive I've got to point it out to you because some of you are missing it. There's grace. There's where you sit up and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And God does that. Why? Because Moses has so identified with the people. Now, I want you to listen to me. Moses comes and he says, I'm, I'll identify with them so that I will die with them. Now, there's one that's going to come greater than Moses who's going to identify with us. And the word became flesh. You remember what Kirkwood was 
quoting moments ago, still out of the same chapter of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He became one of us. He came not only to identify with us, but he came to die for us, to do what Moses could not do. So where Moses says, I identify with them, Jesus comes and says, I will die for them. And to the Father, Jesus says, that sin is not their sin. It's now my sin. And their penalty is no longer their penalty. It is now my penalty. And he bore for us our sin and our penalty so that we now become the righteousness of God. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.